Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson, and we have back with us today by popular demand, mm-hmm. Dr. Brian Gilbert. Brian, what's up, man? Oh, nothing much, man. What's going on? Just living the dream. Doing great. We're uh, really glad you're taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and hang out with us again. I think Absolutely. Uh, your your podcast, even though we did it back in February, yep. we were kind of first getting off the ground, your uh, podcast, I, I don't know if it still is, but it for a long, for a long time, time had the record of most views and downloads and all that, so... <laughs> Yeah. Killed it. By far, just shot up to the front and then stayed there for a long time. Top of, top of the charts, top if you will. Top of the charts, yeah. I mean, I've been told for a long time I have a face for radio, so it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Right. All right. So we will um, kind of get started here a little bit. We're going to be talking about sepsis today, kind of mm-hmm. going through the guidelines. And then, um, you know, maybe if uh, we uh, have some time, maybe Brian can... We'll take the time to share with us some literature he may or may not have published coming oh, yeah. up. Yeah, oh, a little, yeah. little teaser of what's to come. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm super uh, super pumped, man, because I've seen how much stuff you've been putting out this year. You know, I think for me, if I could get one or two things published in a year, I'd be like really excited. And you've had what 17 publications in the last few months. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that many, not not quite that many, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a daunting process, but. You yeah. can do it, bud. You're doing good, man. I'm super pumped to have you here. Um, so what uh, what kind of stuff have you been doing lately? What you did you same last time we talked to you? You're doing emergency medicine, trauma, trauma. What are you up to these days? Yeah, remind people who you are. Yeah, so I'm out in uh, Wichita, Kansas, at Wesley Medical Center, a uh, level one trauma center. Um, past, I guess, the three or four months since I've been on, uh, just been taking on a lot of residents and. Uh, been teaching at uh, Kansas University School of Pharmacy and um, finished up with their pharmacotherapy class and um, still trying to pump out as much uh, literature as possible, do as many projects as possible, and um, had a chance to head out to SCCM annual conference, which was great, uh, trying to prep some other stuff for uh, the Neurocritical Care Annual Congress coming up in September. Um, anybody listening, get your... Uh, applications and everything in so you can go <laughs> attend that meeting it's a great meeting to attend and uh yeah man just uh trying to uh continue to work hard and put out good work heck yeah that's awesome awesome are you um are you speaking at that conference uh hopefully <laughs> submitted a, a few uh poster abstracts so we'll see um a few students of mine uh, have put out some work and some of my work as well but um not sure deadline on that has already passed, but um, should probably hear back pretty soon. Cool, that's awesome. All right, so sepsis. Why, why do we need to go over this now? What's uh, what's big in the the world of sepsis and, and all that? And just so everybody knows, Doctor Gilbert Brian is a critical care pharmacist. You mentioned a little bit of what he does, mm-hmm. but uh, he is much more of an expert on this than we are, which is why we have him on. Yes. <laughs> We were just joking before we started recording that, uh, you know, we like to have people like him on for these subjects that we are not very familiar with yep. because we don't want people like him sitting at home losing their minds as we're <laughs> saying something stupid. So we appreciate you taking the time. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, sepsis right now, I would say is probably one of the most controversial in the past two, three, five years has been one of the most controversial topics within the emergency medicine, critical care realm. Um, overall 
medical uh, community in terms of uh, shifts in paradigm of how we manage it and then as well as uh, how we're identifying it. And, you know, it's just there's been so much literature out there and it's a lot of um, interpretation of that literature uh, as well as trying to go off what um, is going to be reimbursed by hospitals with the uh, with CMS. Right. So it's a it's a very big mess right now in terms of CMS pays us for one way. We're supposed to treat and identify another way. So it's the reimbursement portion of it hasn't really necessarily caught up with some of the newer literature. So um, it's it's good to have these sort of quick updates on that and try to uh, one identify any newer literature out there that can uh, help patients and improve mortality. But then also, you know, it's it's just confusing. There's a lot of conflicting data out there. Right. And what you're referencing is um, the service criteria with Medicare and Medicaid. That's what they reimburse based on. Uh, do independent private payers or are they kind of the same way? They just fall in line with whatever CMS wants to do? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff is based off of quality work. So um, how well you identify these patients, how well you treat these patients um, is pretty much how you are uh, identified as a center of excellence type deal. It's the same thing with uh, anything with STEMIs and, and yada, yada. It's so protocolized and the quality people out there are double checking um, every day to make sure that we are uh, up to date in terms of one, making sure patients are taken care of, but two, we're able to be reimbursed so that we can take care of more patients. So, right. um, you know, the, in terms of the paradigm shift, you know, a couple of years ago, there was newer literature that was published um, as a uh, joint collaboration with two uh, governing bodies on the identification of um, sepsis and what our actual definition of sepsis is. Um, and that became known as sepsis three criteria. So um, that criteria and the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines are shifting and trying to promote the utilization of what we call the quick SOFA score or the sepsis, sepsis organ failure assessment scores. Um, and that's just basically a, a quick bedside screen as well, sort of the same idea and concept as SIRS, something that you can do a real quick bedside to try to screen these patients as uh, patients who possibly may have sepsis. Um, but what we found is that's not the answer either right. <laughs> the past couple of years. So if we, you know, before we start getting into that, you know, you brought up surge criteria. Um, and, and so that for a long time had been the standard of how we had identified patients um, as septic um, SIRS plus the possibility of having an infection um, almost in terms of a continuum of we had SERS criteria, SERS plus an infection equals sepsis. Uh, now we have end organ dysfunction, so we called that severe sepsis. And then uh, sepsis that was refractory to fluids with hypotension, so we called that septic shock. Right, right. The uh, sepsis three criteria try to consolidate that into okay, now this is just every every type of sepsis whatever you want to call it is severe and has in organ damage associated with it because uh, one of the, the most frustrating things is you can get a sepsis alert on your pager and you're running there you got antibiotics in hand you got the order you're feeling good and the patient's sitting there on their cell phone just because they're a little tachypnic and they got um a little slight bump in white count and you're right. just like this is absolutely not sepsis i mean for the criteria this would be considered sepsis but it is absolutely not. So it's one of those things that with the SERS criteria, it was really sensitive at 
uh, identifying patients has had a sensitivity of roughly about 87% <clears throat> of uh, identifying these patients. So you're not going to miss a ton. However, your specificity is really low. I mean, you're down into the 40s to 60s, depending on what literature you use, which is kind of terrible when you think about it. You want something that's going to be that sensitive, but also very specific. So you're not wasting resources on patients and you're not uh, overcalling it. So I think one of the biggest issues we have in sepsis uh, care today is the sort of boy who cried wolf syndrome in that right. um, we over we overcall it quite a bit. And so you get a lot of um, pager fatigue when you see a sepsis alert. You don't really know, is this a true, uh, true sepsis patient or is this just some sort of, you know, erroneous um, inflammatory disorder at this point that is not associated with an infection, but it's really tough. And it's, it's, it sounds really easy when you can just walk in the room and say, Oh, that's sepsis, but it's really tricky, man. Yeah. So the idea is it's too broad and we want something more specific because one, you mentioned wasted resources, which we have enough of that. Uh, but also, um, antibiotic stewardship because all these patients are pretty much going to get antibiotics as well as fluids and those sorts of things, which there's, you know, those aren't completely benign if you're giving a patient that who doesn't need it. Right. It, and it's funny that you say that too, because, uh, you know, in the past couple of weeks, there's actually been two pretty major articles that have come out. One was from the surviving sepsis campaign themselves, um, which, uh, previously everything was, um, and, and the way that we were taught and the way that the uh, surviving substance campaigns read was that everything was in a protocolized bundle. You had a three-hour bundle, you had a six-hour bundle, all wrapped up in that was getting blood cultures, getting a lactate, uh, getting, getting antibiotics in, getting fluid for patients that were hypotensive. Um, the update now for the surviving substance campaign is they want you to do all that, but they want you to do it in an hour now, which mm. is really tough. I mean, talk to any nurse about getting lactates, talk to any nurse about getting blood cultures and trying to identify all this within an hour is, is, is very difficult. So what's the idea and, there? Just identifying it quickly so you can get everything on board that needs to be on board? Yeah. So the, the idea for that is again, getting so that the true treatment for sepsis at this point is going to be um, getting, getting source control and getting those antibiotics in quick. For a patient that has actual sepsis and an infection that is causing a dysregulated host response, it's getting those antibiotics in. It's getting the appropriate antibiotics in too. It's not just giving somebody uh, a dose of Cipro or a dose of uh, Ceftriaxone and calling it a day. It's taking the time to identify this. This patient had multi-drug resistant organism uh, risk factors. Um, is, is the drug that I'm going to give or antibiotic I'm going to give going to cover the source that I'm thinking? So um, it's, it's very difficult within that hour span for a patient that is not a clear cut case of sepsis or not sepsis to, um, you know, get those, get all of that done. Uh, which is why the uh, Infectious Disease Society of America, or IDSA, actually came out um, and has not endorsed the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines uh, from 2016. And okay. their, posi their position paper actually came out and stated why they don't actually agree with that. And it goes back to what you were saying in terms of having too broad of coverage early and having antimicrobial stewardship. Um, their stance is that, yes, quicker antibiotic administration is good. However, um, also having uh, or giving um, antibiotics erroneously um, is bad for stewardship and can lead to more resistant uh, organisms and can also lead to more adverse effects. 
Gotcha. So the new guidelines, you mentioned QSOFA, but I guess SOFA is is more or less ideal at this point. Is that the idea? So so per the guidelines, SOFA is the, the way that you actually identify patients as septic, and that's where the diagnosis comes from. So QSOFA and SIRS are considered more screening criteria. Right. Um, if you have these... Um, if you have these positive signs like QSOFA and SIRS, uh, it's, yes, you need to look further into these patients. They have a higher risk for the development of sepsis. Um, and so what we found with QSOFA is that um, outside of the, the ICU, it's really not a great screening tool for patients that are um, potentially septic. And so we found that it really doesn't have great specificity outside of the the ICU and it's definitely not very sensitive. Um, and so, you you know, if you're having a patient that's in the ICU, this is great, but those, that's only a small percentage of your patients that are actually gonna be septic. And right. so you have, a, have problems here in that you have one that's overcalling sepsis and then another uh, set of criteria that may, may miss it all together and still not very specific unless you're in the ICU. So you, like you said, SOFA is probably the way um, to go in terms of identifying it. However, it's so cumbersome and it's based off of a point scale. So SOFA for people who don't know is basically looking at organ dysfunction. Um, it looks at, you know, respiratory, it looks at renal, it looks at um, liver, it looks at all these different things and gives you these scores, this quantitative value based off of your lab results. And it's just cumbersome because if you don't have baseline labs, it can also be false elevations. If you don't have um, multiple sets of labs, you can't do it. So by that time, you're talking three to six hours out, and these patients have gone three to six hours without appropriate treatment, which is also not good. Um, so it's, as you can see, you're, you know, I'm saying all the reasons why things are not that good. Um, however, we have no real good answer for some of this stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, kind of walking us step by step. So once you, if you actually evaluate that a patient has sepsis, um, where or is septic rather? Where where do you go from there? What's the first step? What's the most yeah. the top? Yeah, priority? I think that's a great that's a great question. So as a pharmacist, I get the sepsis page, I get the sepsis alert. Um, the very first thing that I think about is one, I go and I I, I look at the patient myself and I uh, try to identify. Um, one, what my, what my potential source could be. One, I try to look to see if I actually agree with the diagnosis. And now I'm not a diagnostician and don't claim to be, but, uh, you know, again, if you have a positive cell phone test, probably not somebody that has true sepsis. <laughs> so, um, you know, but you, if you walk in, the patient's hypotensive or they're borderline hypotensive, um, they have a little bit of an uh, altered mentation or they, you know, they have certain signs and uh, symptoms that may be consistent with sepsis. That's my first thought is um, what is my source? And then two, as the pharmacist, uh, you know, I'm not having to uh, get the lactate or get the blood cultures or start a line and things like that. So I go and delve into the patient's um, past medical history. What are things that could prevent me from using certain antibiotics, allergies, any past um, antibiotic use within the past 90 days or so, um, any past cultures that I need to be aware of, things that I can um, actively do to help treat these patients. Because for most of your ED docs, it's gonna be pretty simple. They're gonna try to stick them on as broad spectrum as possible, which 
is what you basically, you, you kind of want that, right? So you want a shotgun approach, you want to give something broad and then narrow as possible. However, you know, there's different nuances between um, giving broad spectrum, there's differences between the use of cefepine and zosin and rocephin and things like that. Um, so then I also have to have an idea of my antibiogram in my head too. So if I'm thinking this is a UTI or, or a urosepsis case, and I know that my uh, susceptibilities to you know, whatever agent is not that great, I'm going to make sure that that patient doesn't get that agent because if it's, if it's something that's going to miss um, that's also associated with increased mortality. We've talked about that in terms of picking not only uh, or getting antibiotics in quick, but getting the right antibiotics in quick. Right. So that's the first thing I do is, is if you look at the data, well, first of all, the surviving sepsis campaign says, you know, they, one, you look at your lactate and one, you look at the patient's hypotensive. If they're hypotensive and their lactate's elevated, um, the, the campaign guidelines say, Go ahead and give a 30 cc per kilo bolus of fluids. Um, give a give a crystalloid and try to resuscitate them. And now we'll get into that and why I think that's probably not necessarily right for every patient. But right. um, you know that's also on the board to think about as well. Uh, so after I do antibiotics, then I go into to the fluid administration portion of that. Now, um, and you look at the recommendation on fluid from the surviving sepsis campaign. One, like I said, it has to be for lactates greater than four or they're hypotensive. So to me, hypotensive is you're hanging around a systolic less than 90 or you have a math that's less than uh, 65. To me, uh, one of the things that uh, kind of gets me fired up is having maps dip below 60 to 65. Um, at that point, you are hypoperfusing no matter what your lactate is reading. Um, for most patients, that is going to be um, your threshold. And at that point, they do need some sort of resuscitation. Now, whether or not you do that with fluids or you do it with vasopressors will be dependent on the patient. Um, so one of the reasons I have a big issue with just giving a flat bolus of 30 uh, cc's per kilo um, is that one, these patients um, may respond just after one, uh, one liter of fluid. And so by giving an additional uh, set of fluid, you put these patients at risk for the development of like renal failure. You put them at risk for pulmonary edema. You put them at risk for certain uh, coagulopathies and metabolic disturbances, um, which with sepsis, you're already at high risk for all these things. So, right. uh, you know, so it's, it's one of these things that um, I try to instill into my residents and my students is that, you know, we look at fluids mm -hmm. sometimes as pharmacists as, oh, they're not, you know, they're just fluids. There's nothing really harmful about it. It's like, no, fluids are a medication. They serve a medical purpose and they can cause a lot of harm, especially if we're using the wrong fluids. Um, and so, yes, there's a big uh, controversy out in the literature right now on the utilization or the concept of fluid responsiveness. And that's with, um, by giving a, by giving a 500 cc's or giving a liter at a time and then seeing it, how the patient responds to that fluid and whether or not they're still intravascularly uh, dry and need more fluid or not. Um, there's different ways of doing that. You can do things like passive leg raising, which essentially gives you a, a 500 cc bolus from your um, lymphatic fluid in your uh, lower half, and that returns to the heart, and then you can just see how they respond. Do they have a drop huh. in heart rate? Do they have an increase in blood pressure? Um, you can also use non-invasive monitoring to look at 
Um, do patients um, have uh, a response um, that, you know, after um, giving fluid and the non-invasive monitoring essentially just looks at things like stroke volume variance, which is basically the difference in the amount of fluid um, that's being pumped out of your heart after each stroke. So the less variance you have, the more fluid resuscitated you are, so the, the less fluid you would need during the resuscitation. So there's, there's different ways of doing it, and that you could go into a whole two-hour topic on that, but um, I think fluid responsiveness or uh, fluid-guided resuscitation is probably the way to go in terms of sepsis and treating it after antibiotics, not just giving this flat rate of 30 cc's per kilo. Right, so more patient-specific. And that maneuver is fascinating. I was I was not at all aware of that, so that's really cool. Yeah, I really, and I, I'll have my residents do it, too. And they'll, you know, sometimes as pharmacists, we're a little standoffish, and we don't necessarily want to touch the patient. Right. <laughs> but no, you know, I have a nurse in there, and I'm like, hey, just hold their legs up, and let's see if we get any sort of uh, response, you know. So um, it works really well, and it's a great way to try to identify these patients. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, there's a whole hour topic on just fluid responsiveness and things like that. I could nerd out on that, but, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, when you start talking about um, the sepsis treatment and, and that's pretty much it, right? So we think about, do we give, we give them early antibiotics and we give them fluids for a true septic patients. I think the biggest thing in the game right now is just identifying who's actually truly septic. And I don't think we have an answer for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been the utilization or tr- uh, people have tried to use procalcitonin, which is a, yeah. a biomarker, which is um, supposedly supposed to be used during bacterial infections. I don't think it, it has been used properly, and I don't think it's been the uh, end-all, be-all answer we thought it would be. Um, Does it so have promise at all? You know, it's... If it's used properly, I think that it actually can help with um, de-escalation of antibiotics. Um, I don't really know if it's great at identifying true septic patients, but if you've um, had a patient that is um, that you identify as uh, septic, um, I think it can help guide that therapy. Usually, I, I like it for patients that, for whatever reason possible, we weren't able to get antibiotics or get blood cultures. And so I try to use as many other biomarkers that I can to try to um, narrow my therapy as much as possible. So there's things like, you know, procalcitonin. There's actually using um, MRSA nares in the uh, in the nose to try to identify patients that may be colonized with MRSA. Right. I mean, so it, it happens a lot. But, yeah, I don't think procalcitonin is quite the answer that we want it to be. Right. I tended to talk uh, on it, and it seemed like the consensus was it was in a lot of order sets randomly, but they never really tracked it. They didn't trend it. They didn't repeat it. So it, it, it just isn't being used like it should or might could be. Yeah, that's yeah, like that's that that's perfect. That's the right answer on that. We just don't quite know yet. There's sometimes that things look great that we just need to get more literature out there and more people um, using it and telling us how they're using it. And the problem is, is, you know, people don't publish bad data, which is probably more useful than actual good data. Um, and so if we're all doing the same thing and it's not working, but nobody publishes that, or there's no journal that will publish that, you know, we're, we kind of get screwed on that because yeah. um, it's, it's almost a dogmatic approach of, I'm just going to continue to do this and no one's going to stop me and there's no new, you know what I mean? So right. it's, it's kind of a tough spot. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it seems like if something bad does get published, people aren't, you know, it's not really publicized. People don't know that it's there and to go read it and it's not on the front lines. They might come across it in some deep literature research, but you don't hear about it like one of the big, you know, trials for whatever your um, specific profession is. Bad data hardly ever gets published. I'll, I'll just say that there's um, there's a great YouTube video on um, on actual published data that looks into, and it's a, a psychology professor that goes into the actual statistics of why most research that's published is actually wrong. So it's actually a pretty decent video, and I can send you guys the link on it. But it's it's pretty pretty awesome um, to think about. And so, but yeah, that's just my stance is that that negative data is probably more valuable sometimes than, than true positive. Yeah. This is a side note, but is that because the authors that conducted the actual observation or went through the, the trial don't want to publish it or because a tri- a like actual journal peer reviewed organization doesn't want to do the publication? The answer to that is yes. Both. To both to both. Gotcha. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing if you're a drug company to not have positive data. And and then it's embarrassing for, you know, most, most journals, you're not going to get cited as much if you have um, basically data that shows no difference in something. Everybody likes something shiny. They like something new. They like positive data um, as a way to try to drive up citations. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's tough as people that are, true scientists that are just trying to get out um, the data that happened. Um, it's not a failure on the part of the, the scientists, unless the, you know, the study design was bad, but um, that's just, it's, it's real tough that way. Maybe we um, should uh, start a publication and only publish non-popular data. I was literally about to say the exact <laughs> same thing. We'll publish only non-popular data. If you have a great, Result, we don't want you. We don't want you, no. And then, not only that, then we'll get, they'll find the drug companies that are more interested in like their 10 year, like, legacy effect. Uh-huh. So they're <laughs> like, you know what? Our, our drug's not the best, but we're here for the patients and we're going to push the, the yeah. we're going to show you this bad data. Honestly, it sounds funny, but you know how many more people would go after that drug company to like, and yeah. want to be a part of them if they actually showed that? Yeah. Like, hey, we're going to lose a lot of money on this, but honestly, we want you to get better care. So go with the other guy. <laughs> You're, you're welcome, whoever drug company CEO <laughs> wants to take that advice. Yep. You'll be broke and uh, moral all at the same time. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But um, you never know. Sometimes uh, maybe it'll pay, play out in the long run. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to think of a good name. I'm sure Bad Data Medical Journal won't won't go over so well. So we'll think of something better. <laughs> or it may be awesome. Brian, you want, you want, you want in on this, right? Yeah, exactly. editor, Editor-in-chief sounds good. Go. But, yeah, go. perfect, because I don't know how to edit anything. There will only, only be about 20,000 submissions a day. Just, oh, yeah. Uh, we'll have to get an intern. <laughs> Plenty of content, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the, the other thing that gets uh, questioned a lot is jumping in back to the sepsis is when do I add vasopressors on to patients? Um, you know, historically, we used um, our algorithm from the Manny Rivers trial um, early goal directed therapy, and we just used it, protocolized medicine as a way to try to just go down this ladder of I've done this or almost a checklist. I've done this. Now I need to do this. Now I need to do this. And so that goes back into uh, what we were talking about with uh, patient specific guided therapy with fluid. It's the same thing with vasopressors. So if you have data that suggests that these patients are systemic, they have low systemic vascular resistance, you're going to want to add on a vasopressor earlier than rather than later. You don't want to just keep dumping fluid into them 
um, that's not going to work at that point. So, you know, these patients already have some component of distributive shock secondary to um, increases in um, inflammatory cytokines and histamine release and interleukins that are causing these capillaries to be leaky at this point in their third spacing. So you want to add some sort of clamp at this point. Um, so there's no real magical number. Most people say, again, after your fluid resuscitation, jump on depressors. If you still don't have, um, you know, if you still don't have uh, appropriate maps, but I'm of the notion, if you've given a leader, you still don't see response, go ahead and throw on norepi at that point. Get it going, get it started early. Because what you don't want to do is wait too late and then reach this sort of irreversible cardiogenic shock at that point or uh, sympathomimetic cardiomyopathy. And, and so that's basically what happens when you reach a certain threshold where um, you're no longer able to compensate at that point. So I, I am very much of the notion of adding vasopressors on early. Um, if they're acidotic or they have uh, lower pHs, I'm really quick to add on vasopressants next um, just because it's pH independent and it gets me there quicker. Um, a lot of times there's, there's no mortality data associated with any of these, um, basic pressors. So that's something to think about as well. Um, so, but there are wrong ones, right? So we know that basic pressing first is not, um, has been shown to, uh, not be a more effective than norepi and actually can be harmful in some situations, uh, removing, uh, vasopressin first can lead to, uh, secondary hypotensive events. So we try to leave that on, um, I guess the biggest thing too is the newer literature with the um, new presser, geopressa, or angiotensin II. Um, there are some, there is some data with that, which um, could go a whole another hour on that. Um, I think that that is probably a good start, mm -hmm. although there's a lot of going back to data. There's a lot of question marks with that data um, and its utilization, so not necessarily sure where. Um, it falls into play in, in terms of when to add it, when not to add it. Should I add it second? Should I add it third? Um, so not great data on that yet. So it got approved from a phase three trial with roughly 360 patients. So still a lot of question marks, a lot of safety data associated with it, but it is promising. Uh, one of our newer um, sepsis um, clinical trials that showed some promise. Cool. Very cool. The... Um, what I forgot to touch on it too with fluids was a um, big study in New England, uh, I guess probably two months ago now, um, on crystalloid therapy. So the surviving sepsis camp campaign guideline recommends crystalloids over colloids as there's no mortality benefit associated with colloids and they're more expensive. And so um, we just tend to use crystalloids. Uh, but you know, for the most part, every, every institution was utilizing normal saline. Where there's a study that came out in New England that was actually uh, performed at Vanderbilt University uh, in their ED and looked at um, the use of balanced crystalloids versus normal saline for their critically ill patient population. Um, so their balanced crystalloids being like plasma light and lactated ringers. Um, they found some... Um, positive benefit with the utilization of uh, lactated ringers and balanced crystalloids over the use of normal saline in terms of renal failure. There was a small mortality benefit and it was statistically significant, but it's one of those things that 
Um, it was a composite endpoint, so you're not really sure. Was that? It's one of those things. Was it actually? It's statistically significant, but is it clinically significant? Yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah. It also confirms some of our older retrospective data on the utilization of uh, lactated ringers versus crystalloids. So. I tend to use more uh, lactated ringers in my patients um, as long as they don't have any contraindications. Uh, you know, usually just hyperkalemic patients. There is a small amount of potassium in there, but um, you do, there has been uh, large amounts of data that's shown uh, benefit for patients with renal failure or preventing renal failure with the use of balanced crystalloids. Gotcha. So right now we're thinking, okay, they have true sepsis. We're starting antibiotics. We're getting them fluid resuscitated. If they're not responding to fluids, then that's septic shock, right? And then you would consider vasopressors. Right, right. And again, so what you define as not responding to fluids is going to be totally up to you right. um, and whatever clinical parameter you use for that. But yeah, early administration of vasopressors at that point, um, probably good to get a Go ahead and get an art line so you can try to see what their patient's true blood pressure is. Um, and then I guess the last would be I have them on vasopressors. I have them on two vasopressors. This is the old steroid debate in sepsis. Um, that comes up quite a bit and is in the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines um, as a refractory, refractory shock uh, recommendation. Um, there's just been more and more data. Uh, and another uh, article that was published in New England not too long ago as well that looked at hydrocortisone therapy for patients with a refractory septic shock that showed no mortality benefit associated with it. Um, however, interestingly enough, in the same New England um, uh, issue, they had hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone together, which showed a mortality benefit. So there's a lot of interest right now on the mechanism of how maybe fludrocortisone could actually help with these patients. Um, and there's been, there's more uh, research going into that. So that's something that's promising, but. Um, so are they thinking it's more of like the actual mineral corticoid versus a glucocorticoid that's actually benefiting? Yeah. Yeah. Which... I mean, that's, that's the, that's the thought process. And then, um, you know, again, but it goes into identifying the appropriate patient for that, um, which, there's not great biomarkers for that. Most people would say, oh, just get a cortisol level, but we know from the corticus trial not to use cortisol levels in septic uh, shock patients. So a lot of unanswered questions still within the sepsis realm. Um, but what we do know is, is early antibiotic administration, appropriate antibiotic uh, administration is associated with, with good outcomes. The rest of it is just ancillary. And it makes sense when you think about it, you know, um, if you have a knife wound and you're just putting a Band-Aid on it with, and that Band-Aid being your fluids, like that's not really doing anything. The real major issue is you're bleeding out, right? So same thing with it, with uh, sepsis. It's an infection that is causing a dysregulated host response. So getting something to um, sterilize the blood or sterilize that infectious site is going to be your your biggest uh, obstacle. So source control is the biggest, uh, biggest thing you got to think about with septic patients. So, and so, as, as pharmacists, we have a, lot, a huge role in that. Like I said, I mean, my partner and I, we do a lot of um, antibiotic stewardship and stewardship's just not, that's, that's not just, okay, I'm going to give them the narrow spectrum because they don't need it. It's also making sure they're on the appropriate broad spectrums as well. Right. So, and this is probably going to be an ignorant question, but um, when you, you know, I know you, you mentioned 
like empiric antibiotics, is there any situation where you're fairly confident that it's a fungal origin and then you start like prophylactic antifungals? So, so there is data on um, the use of empiric um, antifungals. Um, if you're thinking they have a fungemia, um, there was a large study out of Duke that looked at, you know, patients that got mycofungin early versus later. Um, and there was actually, a, I believe it was an increased, I have to go back and check that trial. I haven't looked at it because I don't, I don't use a ton of uh, antifungals in the ED often, but I have to go back and look at that data, but I'm pretty sure that there was increased associated mortality for patients that got uh, empiric uh, antifungals earlier than, rather than later with a confirmed uh, fungemia. But um, if I think it's intra-abdominal, um, normally I'll start off with, you know, cefepime, metronidazole to start off with. Um, if I'm thinking there's an intercoccus history, I may add on some vancomycin, but I typically don't add a dose unless um, there's some sort of intra-abdominal manipulation that's, they have a previous history on it. Now, if they came in and they had, they were on some sort of fluconazole um, prophylaxis or suppression therapy, I may be quicker to add it on or a dose of amphotericin be uh, quicker than I would um, patients that just came in with suspected intra-abdominal. So generally speaking, what's the most common infectious source that you see? Um, so it just depends. So we just got out of respiratory season. So this, that's always tough to try to identify, um, you know, a, a true, um, viral pneumonia versus, uh, bacterial. Right. Um, so, so that's pretty common. And then your urinary source is always pretty common as right. well. Right. Um, your classic meningitis cases don't really ever, uh, present with the three classic symptoms that they teach you in school, but, um, you can see, you can suspect meningitis fairly quickly in a lot of patients just because they'll have pretty high, um, they'll be uh, pretty high temperatures and they'll be altered. So it'll be high on your list of uh, your differentials. So how does that change your antibiotic choices? Um, so, I mean, you, so you start thinking about um, source and so broad spectrum, I think, okay, broad spectrum agent, Zosin, great. It would cover pretty much everything I'd want for um the pathogens associated with meningitis. However, when I think about um, penetration into the CNS, Zosin doesn't penetrate the CNS, so that's already out. So those are the things that you can sort of prevent as a pharmacist when you have that um, antimicrobial drug knowledge that, um, not to say that your uh, true ED doc's not gonna have, but it does help out. You know, those are things that you can think about. They get busy with a patient and they just throw something on broad spectrum, but it's like, oh, hey, I saw we did an LP on this patient. Let's go ahead and switch over to something else, you know? Right, right. When you said Zosin, I, like for a quick second, I panicked because I'm like, since when do we use Zosin and meningitis? <laughs> I'm dumber than I thought. Oh, no. <laughs> and, then you, and then you saved it. I was like, oh, whew. Okay, we're good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, you try to limit um, for as much, um, you know, when, when my partner and I are down in the ED, we try to stick with, for the most part, IDSA has good empiric regimens. There's some that are iffy, plus minus, um, that you can make a debate for uh, on the utilization. Yeah, so we try to stick to the IDSA recommended empiric guidelines as much as possible. But then again, that'll also be antibiogram specific. Um, it'll also be uh, availability as well. Yeah. 
So, so what else? So is there any, I mean, you went kind of through several of the different things we need to think about in treatment. Is there anything kind of like to get them to the next step in recovery or what is the next part in the The next biggest thing is just you get them up to the ICU and it's just making sure that you, one, you you narrow uh, antibiotics as much as possible um, and you've resuscitated them properly. Um, There is associated, so when I say resuscitated properly, it means that you did give them the fluid that they need, whether that be uh, no fluid up to however much, you know, the 30 cc's per kilo. there's, there's increased mortality associated with patients that are septic that have a positive fluid balance at 72 hours. So I try to make sure that we are not continuing the resuscitation at uh, two to three days if we don't need it. Um, so you're going to m- measure things like lactate, which is not a great measure uh, of tissue hypoperfusion, but it's what we got right now. Um, and there has been a little bit of data that's looked at um, lactate guided resuscitation for um, sepsis patients that, that has shown mortality benefit. And then, so you just want to make sure that you are continuing, um, you know, again, appropriate antibiotics and narrowing as possible. Um, you want to make sure that, um, if these patients and and supportive care for these patients too. So like if they end up getting intubated, you're obviously going to try to limit complications from that. So you'll do stressful prophylaxis, DDT prophylaxis, everything like that. Um, Correct any coagulopathy that you can. Um, Make sure that these patients are, um, you know, tending to get better. You could use procalcitonin as a guided therapy if you wanted to. But um, the other thing is if you see these patients starting to go downhill or they're just not continuing to, uh, if they're not getting any better, um, I'm pretty quick to recommend broader therapy at that point, or I may do like an, uh, one dose of antifungal. Uh, may at that point want to think about an ID consult as well. Maybe there's a source that you're not thinking of. Maybe you don't have source control that you think you do. Um, so those are all probably good things. But you know, you can have sterilization of your um, infectious site within minutes, depending on the antibiotic. Um, and the penetration into the tissue. So if you have the right antibiotic and you've given it um, and they're still not getting better, at that point you need to think as a pharmacist, okay, do I not have the appropriate therapy on? Yeah. So summarizing here, back to what seems to be the most um, important, definitely controversial issue is the evaluation. What's your, at least what do you advocate as a go-to for the quick bedside evaluation? between Sears, QSOAP, and whatever whatever else there is? I, I am a big uh, big champion on the utilization of, like, both. So if you – and there's not – and this is all anecdotal. There's not any data on that yet, which I'm trying to work on. I'm working on the IRB for it now. But, there you go. Uh, <laughs> the problem with these, like, identification studies and sensitivities and specificity studies, you're talking about thousands of patients, which I have some minions, but I don't have enough minions to collect right now. Need some interns. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For our for our bad journal, bad bad medicine. Exactly, journal. exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you you know, so the, the um, I'm a, a champion of. Okay, look, do they have positive SIRS? If they're positive SIRS, go ahead and go into the Q sofa and look and see. Are they hypotensive? Are they altered? Um, and if they um, meet both SIRS and Q sofa, um, I'm a um, 
big champion of saying, okay, we need to maybe go down that pathway yeah. as well. Um, you know, it's, it's fair, not fairly easy, but it's the septic shock patients are a little bit easier to pull the trigger on calling the sepsis alerts and getting everything going right away for them, as opposed to ones that maybe uh, their lactate's like two one. And so it's only slightly elevated, but it's not outrageous. So there's different stages of sepsis as well. So there's, there's some um, explanation in the literature of early identification or early sepsis versus delayed onset sepsis and all that. So, um, and which I am not an expert on identifying that type uh, or stratifying those patients, but um, if they're altered, usually altermentation is a big sign for me. If the if you've excluded other issues, um, and then if you get a lactate that's elevated, so those are two that I kind of look at initially. But my bedsides are SIRS, then I go into QSOPA. Right, it's kind of a clinical decision at that point. Yeah, and and you know you're going to have that conversation, especially if you have a good collaborative practice with your with your docs. It's right. going to be a hey, what do you think on this? Like, and then it goes back into I look into the the patient's um, past medical history too. Do they have reasons to be infected? Um, do they have reasons to have multi drug resistant organisms? Things like that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about what the what you've been working on. What's the big thing? What's what's to come? You just referenced. Uh, a little bit with your minions and things, but what, what's come out recently? <laughs> and also, too, I want to say before we even get started, Brian is extremely humble for all the stuff that he's doing. And so we're, we're putting him on the spot because we want him to get his, his literature <laughs> out there because it's important. And we uh, we really appreciate the stuff he's doing. So he doesn't like to talk about it, and especially not on, you know, going out to the masses, but it's too bad because now you're on a podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so my, the pilot study that uh, we did last year looking at um, SIRS versus QSOVA versus a combination of the two, um, and we stretched so basically there was a paper that's coming out in Advanced Emergency Nursing Journal. Um, it's out right now, and um, that was what we looked at was early identification, um, these, these tools or screening markers, and how it relates to um, do these patients receive um, – quote unquote, uh, a diagnosis of sepsis. And I put quote unquote, because we were utilizing ICD-10 codes. It was one of my residence project projects at last year. So one of the downsides of that is you got to get done with it pretty quick. So right. um, retrospectively, we had to use ICD-10 codes, which is not a validated method of identifying septic patients. So I want to throw that out there. But um, what we looked at was, um, you know, again, the four groups where you serve positive, where you QSOPA positive, where you SIRS and QSOPA positive, or where you neither. Um, interestingly enough, we found pretty much, we didn't have enough data for our just QSOPA patients. We had two patients within that um, within that subgroup and 50% of them were end up being septic. Uh, for the SIRS only group, it was pretty consistent with the previous literature. I think it was like 40 to 50% were had a diagnosis of sepsis, which we talked about. It's not very specific. Um, interestingly enough, um, and you kind of led me to the, to the question on which bedside screens I use, but, um, using SIRS and then using QSOPA together, we ended up having 75%, um, of our patients get identified as septic within that subgroup, hmm. um, which I thought was a pretty, pretty decent yield at that point. It, we would obviously need more data to support that, but, um, in my perfect world, like I said, I would use SIRS if they're positive there and then go into the QSOPA. 
And then lastly, in the groups that have had neither, um, patients actually had around a 14% chance of getting a diagnosis for sepsis, which I found very interesting because that just shows that we still don't have all the answers that yeah. um, QSOPA and SERS is just not the answer at that point. So 14% is fairly, fairly high when you think about if I'm not treating these patients till late or not getting them the antibiotics they need, um, you know, that's, that could lead to increased mortality. Now, granted, it was a very small study. It was, very, it was a pilot study, but um, there are some interesting concepts within that paper that um, we are exploring further. Um, another big area that we're working on right now is our um, stroke team, um, the utilization of a pharmacist within the stroke team. Um, we found that um, patients within, or uh, patients that had an ED pharmacist present uh, that had an acute ischemic stroke that received TBA actually got it about 12 minutes faster with me and my partner there. Hmm. Um, so we're in the process of writing that up. Um, and we just submitted a paper for our, uh, we actually increased or just started a, a protocol back in October where we salvage um, TPA uh, from patients that uh, receive TPA for acute ischemic stroke. So um, dosing on that's 0.9 mg per kg for TPA. And if you um, up to a max of 90 milligrams. And so uh, what happens is, is any of that waste just gets thrown away at other institutions. It's very expensive. One milligram of TPA costs roughly around 80 bucks. So it's fairly a large uh, cost burden to institutions. And yeah. so we, uh, we looked at our patients from a three month standpoint when we just started it and we saved uh, roughly 23,000, yeah, $23,000 within three months um, and had TPA times that were faster. So we're writing that up and trying to hopefully get that published too. Some other things in the works. Um, I love it. Don't want to reveal them all, all yet, but yeah, oh, keep tuned. some secret. <laughs> well, that's it, guys. I uh, I do appreciate y'all uh, having me on for it, and yeah, you know, again, same thing. If got anybody has questions on um, on sepsis, I'd be happy to try to throw in my input. Again, this was all my interpretation of the data, as we talked about. It's not not guideline gold, but do, do you have like a list that you've compiled or had students compile of like these, these sort of landmark trials for critical care and emergency medicine? Yeah. So I, um, that was one of the things that my institution, I did my second year critical care residency was, um, I looked at some of the trials they had on, um, uh, their list and was like, man, this is kind of not inclusive. We need to add some more to this. So that was something I did last year, but it's like you said, continually updating, continually um, being altered too. It'd be funny because you can see a, a trial that's like here and then you go down like, you know, three or four pages and you're like, well, oh, that's contradictory. That, that, that debunked this one. Right. So <laughs> it's interesting. Well, we'd, uh, if, if you were ever interested in it, man, we should do a, uh, a blog post for core consult for those of you know that follow that are interested in critical care put together some trials and get them to the alexa and make a reference guide that you know we can obviously have you as the lead author on and absolutely man yeah i mean it's it's interesting because you can you could critical care is so broad and you could get into as nitty-gritty as you want but like you said there's a great app too um i'll plug it um it's called icu trials uh, and it's uh, by a guy, I forget his name, 
Um, his name is Sean P. Kane, um, and he is a cl clinical background in uh, IT, but also um, some critical care. And he does this uh, cool thing, I'll show, try to show it here, uh, where you have all the different kind of clinical trials that are um, of relevance to uh, critical care. And he goes into sort of his cliff notes on things, and then he'll, he'll give like the um, abstract at the end and PubMed ID. So that's one of the things that um, I, I try to stay as up to date on literature as I can. And I also try to know the literature that maybe some of the older docs are quoting from back in the seventies. And so you try to like, <laughs> <laughs> you may try to like find it on there sometimes if I, if I've never heard of the trial. So that's something that I recommend as well. It's a great database. Awesome. If there's one thing I love, it's convenient apps with good information. Yes. So there you go. Yeah, he does a great job, and he updates it pretty frequently. That's awesome, cool. man. We'll definitely we'll plug that on the other platforms too then. Do you know him personally? or? I, I do not. So I got this from when I was a student at um, UF Jacksonville. My um, neurocritical care uh, preceptor was big buddies with him, and so he's like, oh, you need to get this. And I thought, okay. And that's what I would do is like if I – for whatever reason, as a student, if I found myself not having something to do, I would pop that out and just start reading. And then I would have like a, a little bit of uh, insight into some of these trials yeah. until I had time to go back and read, read them further. That's awesome, man. Awesome. Good for you. The, uh, yeah, we'll definitely check. I want to check that out myself. There you go. Cause I'm, that's probably my absolute weakest area would be critical, critical care. care. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> Our patients are usually doing okay. Yeah. Not great, but they're not like... Mine's you know. more of the cell phone patient. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All about the cell phone. <laughs> Man, um, well, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. For sure. I know you're busy and it um, means a lot to us that you come on here twice. And uh, we always like having you. I've, I've gotten such good feedback from people and oh, yeah. people saying what a good uh, teacher you are too, so... It's uh, awesome. Yeah, just, man, this is what it's about. It's about helping. Like at the end of the day, like we've talked about it, you guys are helping patients, which is the awesome thing. Like you're, you're making a global impact on patients throughout the country. So I appreciate what you guys do and having me on. Of course. Um, is there anything we can do for you to help you out at all? Or I mean, anything we can promote for you, like going forward uh, or just send me minions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do. Give them some students, give them yes. some uh, residents. <laughs> Yeah, please let us know if we can do anything. If you ever have something getting published, or um, will you email me the you know your recent publications, and I'll make sure I put them out there and um, get you some exposure. But um, yeah, man, thank you so much for for being on. Uh, please let us know if we can do anything to increase the quality of the show or anything like that. We, you know, we always welcome your feedback. So um, you guys are killing it. I appreciate it. I, I appreciate Thanks, that. Um, real quick too, before we go, um, I want to give a. Uh, kind of a shout out to my buddy, Dr. Richard Waith, a uh, pharmacist down in Miami. He uh, runs the RX radio podcast and he just had his first book published today. And uh, so it's called the first time pharmacist, everything you didn't learn in school or on the job training. Um, it's available. The Kindle edition is on Amazon. Uh, it's also going to be available as a hard copy and an audiobook soon. So Big, uh, awesome. big shout out to awesome. him. He wrote the thing in like 35 days. Like I thought he was joking when he said he got it published today. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think he just locked himself away in a, a room somewhere and just 
ripped through it. So yeah, I literally graduated yesterday, so maybe I should pick me up a copy. Of yeah, that. yeah. Come on, Cole, what's slacking? I know. Gosh, twelve hours later, and I don't have Rich's uh, book yet. So we'll I, get it. I told Cole, I was like, this is why I think he's going to be successful because while everybody else is out partying and enjoying their graduation, he's uh, reviewing sepsis so we can do a podcast. <laughs> I'm stuck in here, <laughs> stuck in here with you guys. I, I was like, this is why he's going to be successful because he's like a day off. Never heard of it. Right. Exactly. I like it. I like it. Cool. Good stuff, man. Well, thank you so much again, and we'll uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Guys, appreciate it. Bye, Brian. Man. Later. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.